In June 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at the Compass Church, Naperville, Illinois, for our biennial EFCA One Conference. We gathered under the theme, Multiplying Disciple Makers. On this episode of the podcast, we share Ed Stetzer's concluding message from this conference focusing on Acts 2, 42-47, Evangelism and a Culture of Disciple-Making. Ed serves as Billy Graham Chair of Church, Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College and Executive Director of the Billy Graham Center. That may be the longest bumper with a single image ever that has been produced and shared. And it's just me wearing the same thing I wear every single day. Um, But it's good to welcome you to the cold storage unit here. I mean, the sanctuary at Compass Church. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) I appreciate it, actually. You're in Chicago. We have uh, not yet gotten through winter. The cold remains here. This winter, it got down to 27 degrees below zero. That's not, not wind chill, but that's actual temperature colder than the surface of Mars. Uh, and actually, believe it or not, colder than a legalist's heart. And that's cold right there. That's cold. That's pretty cold. You know that is. So, but I'm so glad to be here and to share with you, have a deep love and appreciation uh, for the Evangelical Free Church. I tell people it's my backup denomination because you never really know when my denomination will tire of me and knowing that you're here has been a great comfort for me for a long time. Many of my, my colleagues feel the same way. But Acts chapter 2 is our text. And actually, I, we've been kind of going through a theme in our meetings this last few days. And so Kevin uh, shared with me this text. Acts 2 was my text. Acts 2, 42 through 47, which is interesting in a lot of ways. Because for most of you, you are very familiar with this text. And when you're very familiar with the text and hearing somebody preach it, uh, can indeed be, well, you know, I would have said this or I would have explained it that way. But this text is, is not one that actually specifically speaks to the topic. So I'm, I'm sort of assigned a topic with a text that doesn't incredibly speak to the, to the topic at hand, unless you see the, uh, the implication throughout the text. And that's why I love the fact that, uh, that in the description, there's the description they sent me. Disciple making consists of both evangelism, receiving, evangelism, receiving Christ and discipleship following Christ. And even though we come to faith in Christ individually, we come into a family, a family, the church of disciples. I love this. The family church trait is that we are committed to disciple weighing as disciple making as a way of life. And so I love, even in the description they sent me, that this passage is rightly seen in the broader context of the New Testament church as the church is functioning in community, but it's a community on mission. And so a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. And that's what I want us to look at as we gather together to close our meetings here. So again, a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. So Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 is our text. And again, my assumption is there'll be a high familiarity with the text. And so let me read it out loud to begin, and then we'll kind of walk through the text in four parts. It says this, beginning at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any 
had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So we have a description here of the rhythm of life. But don't miss verse 47, the second part. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So what's going on here is significant for both what it says and for what it implies. What it says, it speaks of a rhythm of life that might 2,000 years later seem sometimes foreign to us, but at the same time appealing to us. And simultaneously, it speaks that that rhythm of life in some way had an element to mission that ultimately the Lord added daily to their number, those who were being saved. So in four points here today, kind of walk through, I want to talk about the gospel community, the common results, the rhythm of community, and the community's converts. And we'll look at these things building together towards this passage. How was the Lord adding daily their number to those who are being saved? Because we know by the totality of Scripture that how will they hear unless somebody shares with them, unless there's a preacher. So we know that this community in the rhythm of life that it had, well, had an element of mission and gospel proclamation because we see the evidence of that. We infer from the text that something's going on. So let's look at those four things, starting with number one. I'm not using PowerPoint because PowerPoint seems so 2018. And so I've kind of moved away from that now. So number one in our outline is the gospel community, the gospel community. And again, I want to remind you that a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. Now again, let's talk about who we are, right? Your name is the Evangelical Free Church in America. Now, evangelical is the first word in your name, which in 2019 may be a little harder than it was when the word was first used. But evangelical speaks of something about who we are, and it reminds us that ultimately we're part of a community of faith that believes and practices certain things, right? Well, some of those things are described right here in verse 42. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I don't know about you, but I've preached this passage, I don't know, 10, 15 times in the course of my pastoral ministry work, and and this passage, I've preached uh, section by section. I, I would go point one, the apostles' teaching, explain the authority of the scriptures and more. To fellowship, point two, I talk about koinonia and community. And I'm guessing even in these passages, the familiar, familiarity is evident to you as well. But I want to actually move beyond the individual practices, though they're important. And I want to point out that they had a rhythm of life. They had a rhythm of life in community together, and they devoted themselves, right, in community. That's fellowship, the koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the Word of God shaped their community to koinonia, to fellowship, this common sense of of God-honoring gospel community, to the breaking of bread, which, you know, depending on the commentary you read is either the community fellowship they had, but that's maybe repeated a little bit later, or the partaking of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper together, and to prayer. So, so again, it's an interesting beginning, and it's just a description, not of everything here, that the early church would do, but it was a description of what the believers looked like when they were functioning in community. Now, this is significant and important because this sort of follows off after some of the uh, message, the 
call to repentance and more. It says in verse 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So the first line then in verse 42 is a description of what that 3,000 people look like. Well, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they shaped into a community that had certain rhythms and practices, and that was identifiable to both those inside and those outside. There was a community devoted to certain things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, you'll notice communities sometimes are... Uh, are identifiable from the outside. For example, I don't, I don't watch a lot of uh, sports, right? Not generally familiar with, I think a team in Canada won the Stanley Cup recently, uh, the Raptors or something like that, and I was excited for them. I was in Toronto the next day. They seemed very excited about their Stanley Cup. So I didn't ask a lot of questions I just kind of went on. In fact, one day I was at a, I was at a football game. My, my boss took me to this football game and, um, and, 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 and we went to this football game in the University of Alabama. Now I've never been to a football game like this before, but as we came here, my boss named Tom Rainer, he, like David Dockery, the outgoing president of Trinity, uh, had a special affection for, for rolling tides or something like that. So I go to this game and I realize that my boss, his name's Tom Rainer, he's bought me a hat and a shirt so I can blend in because normally I wear black shirt and jeans. And he said, you can't wear that here. So I get there and I can tell you there were some people from the other team, but you could tell everybody had a rhythm of sports that was identifiable they had a language that they spoke to one another. They had a common group of people they knew. We, we were in, he, he got in tickets to this little skybox, right? So I, I met some people and I met this one person and his name was Bart Starr. So I shook his hand. I said, Mr. Starr, what do you do? And he says, well, I own some car dealerships. I said, that's great. So great to meet you. And he sort of walked away. And Tom Rainer said to me, you don't know who that was, do you? And I said, it was Bart Starr. He owns car dealerships. So when you have an identifiable community, of which I was clearly not a part, those of you who don't know, Google is your friend. Turns out he's kind of a big deal in the sport of football. And so, 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 but here's the thing. There's an identifiable community with practices and even differences that people from the outside, which certainly with me, would say, I'm not quite like them. Now, the end result is, is I left the game not desiring to be any more like them. Not that there was anything wrong with them. It just wasn't my thing. But something here in this identifiable community that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, we know that in verse 47, they have the favor of all the people. And at the end of verse 47, the Lord is adding daily to their number those who are being saved. So this community, this gospel community, is not only shaped internally, but it's attractive externally. Leslie Newbegin put it this way in the gospel in a pluralist society. Quoting, he says, I've come to feel the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on the public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has la the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? 
He goes on to say, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this community that was shaped in early on in the book of Acts, we don't want to miss how soon this occurs in the book of Acts. So right following this sermon that we have, we get this Peter's sermon, and immediately there's an identifiable gospel community that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I would say to you, 2,000 years later, we are less community and less identifiable than we were on those early days. And I think ultimately that the mission is impacted because the community is not taken seriously. Now, mind you, let's bring these things together. Remember, part of my task, Kevin, you heard Kevin explain it, is to talk about the role and the place of evangelism, which comes to the end of this text, but it also is rightly woven through this text because by the way they did these things, people saw something in them and wanted what they had. Now, it's interesting that this idea, this approach to evangelism and mission is actually something that the church has at certain seasons and times for 2,000 years made it its practice. For example, not far from here, about 15 minutes from here, is where I serve at Wheaton College. And the Billy Graham Center is there, and inside the Billy Graham Center is the Billy Graham Center Museum. And it's a museum of American evangelism. If you're here tomorrow, take the time to come by, walk through it. It's an hour, and it's fascinating. But one of the things that, it's a museum of American evangelism, very specific niche. It's not a museum of evangelicalism. It's not a museum of uh, American history. It's Amer- evangelism in America. But because at Wheaton College, just as where you went to school, we also recognize that the church did not come into existence when it was planted here in the U.S. We have at the beginning a, a rotunda, a hall of faith. Just have interest. How many of you have been to that Hall of Faith or that Billy Graham Center Museum? Sure, lots of you. So you remember standing in that room, and there's a light that shines on. I am the light of the world. And around there, there are great evangelists. And it starts with Paul the Apostle, and all the evangelicals say, we love that. And then it goes to Justin Martyr, early church father, so we're there. But then the next person around the rotunda is Pope Gregory the Great. And so consistently, evangelicals pretty much jump from Justin Martyr to Martin Luther. Because they won't want to necessarily know about this Gregory the Great and St. Francis of Assisi that are also in there. But let me tell you a little bit about Gregory the Great. Now, I know that speaking about a pope in a gathering of the Evangelical Free Church may be a bit surprising. And I know some of the Calvinists are on edge about this, but let's be honest, you're always on edge if you're a Calvinist. Too much? (laughs) I I, I swim in that stream. It's all good, right? So just so you know, just to make the Calvinists feel better, which is a full-time job, just to make the Calvinists feel better, in the actual institutes, right, we know, you know, significant leaders in Calvinism, you know, you've got got John Calvin, uh, John Piper, John MacArthur, first, second, and third John. And so... (laughs) But it was actually John Calvin himself in the Institutes who calls Pope Gregory the last good pope. So if you can listen to anybody, listen to him for just a moment, because what he does is significant. He's called Pope Gregory the Great, not because of any reason about anything other than he sent out missions. 
Right, he sent out the, a mission with Augustine, or Augustine, depending on the part of the country you're from, but Augustine and a group of missionaries who he sent them to evangelize the, the, what would be England today, right? He evangelized the British, Can- and Augustine of Canterbury would go. But what was fascinating, how what they did, and then subsequently, well, years and even centuries later, what Columba did, or Col- Columban did, and Iona did, as they have re-evangelized Europe, is they didn't go as solitary individuals. They actually came as communities, and now, mind you, it wasn't easy because Augustine of Canterbury, when they just a few, just a few distance out, they write back and say, hey, could we not do this? It looks like it's going to be hard. And they got kind of exhorted to keep going. And so what happens is they, they, they get there and they actually establish a community as they're on mission. So they didn't go up and say, we're here to tell you about Jesus. They began a rhythm of life shaped by the gospel and rooted in the mission that then people around would look in and say, what's going on there? Can I have some of that? Now here's the challenge 2,000 years later, partly because of the reputation we have earned and partly because of the cultural distance that's growing between us and a secular world. They're not looking in and say, can I be like that? But throughout the history of the church, when people created a gospel community, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The end result was this community was a sign. It was, a, it, was a, it was an instrument of the kingdom of God. People looked in and they say, I want something that looks like that. So sisters and brothers, as we think of community and we think of mission and evangelism, we have to acknowledge that part of the reality is we ourselves need to be a gospel community. doesn't end there. Number one is the gospel community. Number two is the common results. Remember, a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. So we go on in verse 43 says this, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now here it sounds kind of charismatic, right? I was actually with the Pentecostals yesterday, right? They're, um, they're more excited than we are, just so you know. <laughs> and, and I kind of like it, right? I'm kind of, we, we, we had a, a wonderful set of worship here. That would have been called warming up at the meeting I was at yesterday. <laughs> but they sound kind of like charismatics, right? Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, if you've taught this message, passage, or you've preached this passage, you actually have an explanation for the two main issues in this passage. One of them is the presence of the miraculous. Now, either you explain it away or you dive in or you have some sort of variant to say why it's less common today, but you have some explanation of the charismatics here. And then it goes afterward and says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone had who had need. So now all of a sudden you have this socialistic practice and somewhere along the way you have learned to explain this. As a matter of fact, this whole section is basically charismatic communists. So at some point we have to have an explanation to how these charismatic Calvinists got into our well, charismatic communists. <laughs> that escalated quickly. Uh, but here's the thing. 
at the end of the day, we all know, we'd point to this passage and you might, your explanation might be that was a bad idea and Paul had to take up an offering to bring the money back because they gave it all away. Your answer might be this was a unique time in a unique situation. But here's what it boils down to. God worked miracles and people grew together. Brothers and sisters, I want that in my church now. God worked miracles and people grew together. Now, I believe in miracles and I believe in unity. And I think that's what the passage is pointing us to today. A church where God is at work and where people are united is the kind of church that Jesus uses for his mission in the world. So walking through the passage, it's gospel, the gospel community. Number two, the common results, miracles and unity. Number three is the rhythm of community, the rhythm of community. Very at the beginning and now a little later on, we really have this sense of rhythm kind of evident before us. If you read this passage, you'll see that Luke is communicating to us that very early on, after the preaching of Peter, the church begins a life together. That life together results in people being added to the church daily, men and women being saved. But if you look at number three, the rhythm of community, it says every day, notice the specificity of Luke's giving. Right? He, he says earlier that they broke, we, you know, fellowship and breaking of bread and the apostles teaching. And now, just in case you miss it, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. When you structure and look at 42 with 47, Luke is clearly trying to communicate to us that this quickly formed into identifiable community with a rhythm of life. Now, here's the challenge. I think the rhythm of life that we've established in most of our churches doesn't look like the rhythm of life that was established in the New Testament. We build our churches like, like, like this building here. I've had, I preached here a few years ago. Jeff invited me when I first came to, to town before I became the interim teaching pastor at Moody Church, which was supposed to last six months and was starting my third year. So I think technically that's not an interim anymore. I've actually been the interim pastor of Moody Church longer than three of their actual pastors were pastor of Moody Church. <laughs> Trying to move that forward, right? Um, there's always a pastor between a famous pastor, right? Warren Wearsby, Harry Ironside. Then there's someone who was there for like 14 months. And they said, well, you're the one who's not the one we had before. You got to go. But I preached in this church. It was a, it's a great church. And Jeff's a great pastor. And there's a great staff. And there's quite a blessing. But um, I look at their building. Let me, let me tell you my opinion of their building. I really don't like it at all. Happy birthday. Um, I mean, when you, when you build a church like this, right? When you build churches like theaters, don't be surprised that people act like showgoers. They, 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 they come and they sit in rows facing forward, knowing that up these steps the holy only go. And then there's performers from the stage and a dynamic message communicated. And when you build churches like theaters, don't be surprised people act like showgoers. And Jeff's right now asking, well, what's the alternative? I said, man, I don't have an alternative. I just bring you my concerns. <laughs> I'm like a good church member. And of course, I'm kidding. It really is a wonderful blessing their facility has here. Don't hear my joking part and think I'm serious. But I am serious that for all of us, right, what do you do when you have more than 50 people? You put them in rows. What does that teach them? Their job is to watch, not do. They're not in a rhythm of life. They're in a rhythm of Sunday church attendance. And the end result is, is we produce rooms of spectators. 
That was the worst applause I've ever heard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need your applause, but if you're in, get in. I don't even know. Kevin's like, what have I done? Um, So we surveyed 7,000 churches uh, in a book called Transformational Church. Tom Rainer and I wrote it together. Our research team did the research. Here's what we found. The majority of people in the majority of churches are unengaged in meaningful ministry and mission. Most people want to come for the show. They don't want to get involved in the serve. And what we see here in this rhythm of life is every day they're continuing together. It doesn't say the apostles anymore. It says they. It's them. They're meeting together, breaking bread in their homes, eating together with glad and sincere hearts. And yet for us, we have grown this distinction, right, between clergy and laity. Think about it. I'm, I'm clergy, right? I'm, I'm clergy. I'm an ordained pastor. I'm clergyman right now. I'm clergyman over here, <laughs> clergyman over there, right? How many of you are ordained clergy? Raise your hand for just a second. Right, okay. Great. Good to see you. Uh, how many of you are lay people? Just raise your hand for a second. Keep them up high. Keep them up high. All right, if you see them, let's look down on them right now if you could do that. Because, right, we're clergy, right? We're paid to be good. They're good for nothing. And even the word gives it away. They're lay people. What do they do all the time? Lay around. Well, we're doing clergy work. But it doesn't sound like that here, does it? And later on in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, As each one has received a special gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each one. You know what it means in original Greek? It's a little technical. It means each one. So that's everybody. Yet in our research, we find that the majority of people in the majority of churches are unengaged in meaningful ministry and mission. They come for the show, but they don't get involved in the serve. This sounds like a community in rhythm of gospel life together. Now, here's part of the challenge for all of us is we've inherited perhaps a rhythm of church life that is disempowering the very people the Holy Spirit has empowered. That is teaching them to to watch the show. Now, what happens, it's interesting when I say that, when I watch the show, for some of you in smaller churches, you immediately think about, well, yeah, those bigger churches, with smoke machines. And that's the dividing line right there between the churches is the smoke machine, right? But you know what we found? What we found is across tradition, liturgical, uh, low church, evangelical, mainline Protestant, uh, across denominational lines, across size, it's, 50 was the smallest just because you can't do uh, sometimes good research on churches smaller than 50 because they're so volatile in number. One family comes, one family leaves, it changes the, the dynamic. So from 50 up to 7,000, here's what we found, is it didn't make a lot of difference, the size of the church, because it's not the size of the church that breaks the rhythm of life in the New Testament pattern and maybe recreates it in our 21st century pattern. Instead, it's the human heart. It seems that for most people, they, they'd rather be customers. And, and they'll come as customers. You've seen this. They'll come as customers, and, and they'll come because you do things the way they, you, they want you to do them. And, and, and if you sing the music they like, and you preach the way they like, and you visit them at the time they like, then they'll stick around. But if you don't, they're going to leave your Walmart, go down the street to Target, and then that'll be the church for the customers for a while. I don't know about you. Jesus didn't call me to customer service ministry. 
That doesn't mean that you don't minister, you don't, you don't care for the needs of those who are hurting. What it means is there's a rhythm of community that together we care for one another. People see that, say that's what the community of the king looks like, and they want something like that. Now, here's the reality for all of us. It's not always so easy to bring about some of the change that we're talking about here today. Because we got to go through, and almost everything we've talked about thus far, because this is what the text has referred to, was the rhythm of life and the actions in and around the community, right? So we started with talking about the gospel community itself. What did they do? Luke gives us four things, right? Uh, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, part of the rhythm of life. Then we see the common results, right? The miracles and the unity. We see, we see God worked miracles and people grew together. So we're seeing this gospel community on mission, right? And so, and, and even when we get to the rhythm of community, it comes, Paul, excuse me, Luke comes back to it and says the frequency every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, again, it's important to note that even everything described here is not exactly how the rhythm of our life would look like. We can't go to the temple courts. You know, so, so this is not intended to say this is what we should do. It's always fascinating to me. A lot of people take this passage and they turn this into their description of their church service on Sunday and their small groups during the week. We meet in the temple and we meet from house to house. And I, you know, I, I get what they're trying to say. There's a rhythm of life they're trying to create. I don't know that we need to take texts and apply them in a way that nobody would have thought of it that way 2,000 years ago. But what we see is all about the rhythm of community life until it gets to verse 47. And remember, too, my assignment is to talk about evangelism in the context of living out community. This passage actually doesn't give us details about how they evangelized, but we know they did because it says this in verse 47. This is, by the way, number four, the community's converts. These are converts that came from the community, came through the community. It says this, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. By the way, might I also say that that's not a promise that we would have 2,000 years later either. Jesus spoke about we should expect persecution. And 2,000 years later, increasingly, as the culture moves away from its Judeo-Christian heritage, it moves away from what we believe, and we may not have the favor of the people in every way. But it says praising God. That's a good thing, Having, enjoying the favor of all the people. And then here it is, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Now, we, we, we don't think that being saved alone would come from, from studying together the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, uh, fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayer. We see those as functions in the life together. So there's some evangelistic activity that's going on in the rhythm of life that Acts 2, 42-47 doesn't record, but maybe that shouldn't surprise us because Peter's sermon was evangelistic right before. And then we can get examples of Paul at Lystra or Pisidian in Antioch or, or Mars Hill. We can, we can see ordinary believers. We can see Stephen. We can see Philip. We, we got lots of examples of what they did. So in the life of community, we know that, that there's a passion for reaching others or else others wouldn't have been reached. You know, I think sometimes Christians have the idea that if they're just the best church they could possibly be, if the word of God is preached with such precision, if their, if their church governance is so biblical, if their church discipline is so perfect that suddenly their church will become an evangelistic church. And I've heard people teach and preach that. I just haven't actually seen it happen. Sisters and brothers, almost every evangelistic person I know comes from an evangelistic church. 
See, the community shapes the values, and then those values flow from there. I, I, wasn't, I got here today, and I got to hear you talk a little bit about your, um, your statement of faith earlier. I thought that was neat. Have you guys ever read Article 9, Paragraph 3 of your statement of faith? You have? I mean, you're familiar with that. Okay. Let me read part of it. We believe in the person... Let me jump ahead. Too soon? Actually, not what I'm... But, but I want you not to miss the rest of it, because I know Kevin already mentioned it. The rest of it says this, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. The normal practice of a church that believes what the evangelical free church believes should be motivated to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. And I would put before you that that is a description of much of what's going on in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They had godly living, sacrificial service, right? And energetic mission. So this passage doesn't describe fully how they lived uh, out the mission, but we can infer they did so because of the results that came from that. How would they hear if there wasn't a preacher? Now, here's the reality. We're living in a strange time. I think we're at a season when evangelism is probably at a, at a low ebb. Um, there are all kinds of these instruments that churches use. I created one called Transformational Church at our research team, and, and there's you know, been indicators of a healthy church, there's natural church development, there's all these things, and people take these tests. Maybe you've taken a test like this in your church. They pass them out, people fill them out, and invariably they come back, and there's you know, five strong areas and two really weak areas. And it's interesting because consistently something happens when those weak areas are noticed. It's, it really depends on what they are. Almost always... Nowadays, one of the weak areas is evangelism and outreach, almost always. Well, not always this way, but almost always that's one of the weak areas. And, and then there's another weak area. It might be prayer. It might be fellowship. And invariably, um, what happens is they come back to the meeting, maybe the elders, the leadership team, maybe it's the whole congregation, and say, listen, we're really low on fellowship and evangelism, so let's really focus on evangelism. No, they say fellowship. See, evangelism is the one thing that your church can't be doing well that you'll keep going and not fix it. Kevin Harney tells a story of someone doing a test like this and 10 years ago, and their lowest was evangelism and fellowship, and they redo the test every few years. It was still evangelism and something else, and evangelism was something else. And Kevin asked him, how long would it take for your church to acknowledge, man, we're not doing a good job with children's ministry. We've got to fix it. We're like, man, we do that quickly. How long would it take for your church to acknowledge, we're not doing a good job praying? Well, we'd fix it. We'd start praying. And then he asked, how long would it take for your church to acknowledge you're not doing a good job in evangelism? And the pastor responded, 12 years and counting. And here's the challenge, I think, for us. The results of this community we see quite evidently and quite beautifully before us. And the question is how we respond to that. Again, a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. But for many, the rhythm and flow of life together looks good and maybe even includes some of those Acts 2, 42 through 46, but we don't have the Acts 2, 47 end result. So let me say it again, a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm of life together. Now, it's interesting. You know, I moved to the uh, western suburbs of Chicago about three years ago. And uh, I love it here. I live not far from where you are right now. I, um, we find that it's a great area. Um, there's 
Um, a lot of people don't know Jesus, and there's also people who know Jesus. But I, I actually lived here uh, two years before. Well, well, let me tell you what happened. I was actually uh, going to the airport. Um, it was in February, and it was the day before Billy Graham died. And I was going to Florida to speak at a, a One Hope event. It's a kind of a relief agency, works for a lot of Pentecostal charismatic churches. And so I get an Uber in Wheaton. I live right by Wheaton College. And Donna, it, my wife, is with me because whenever Florida and February are in the same sentence, she's on board. So, um, so we get in the Uber together, and we're starting to uh, drive to the airport. And Jane is our Uber driver, is her name. And she introduces herself. She says, I am Jane. And and uh, what are your names? Well, Ed and Donna. And because, you know, Ed's on the little screen because it's Uber. She says, Donna. And Jane says to us, you know, she's an Uber driver. She's trying to earn the five and earn the tip, right? She wants that five rating, just like you want. My rating right now is 4.98. It's driving me crazy who rated me lower than a five because I'm nice to everybody on, you know. So I get in the car. Jane says, um, if you like any water, there's water in each, behind each of your seats. There's, uh, there's power cords if you want to charge your phone. She had a little, you know, phone charger. And, 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 and you can take anything you want in the middle where she had, she had, uh, strategically placed candy, little, little candies. And then, and obviously strategically placed propped up pocket New Testament. So we knew the game was afoot. So Don and I have been married for 32 years and together for 37 years. And so we actually don't need to speak words sometimes to one another. It's telepathic. So I look at her and I give her the, let's roll with this and move forward. And so she kind of smiles. And so we start driving and Jane is just a great conversationalist. She says, uh, you know, uh, where are you from? And Donna says she's from Canada. I grew up outside of New York City on Long Island. And Jane told us where she was from. And and she asked, um, you know, well, you know, how long you lived here? About two years at the time. Um, and then she'd sometimes ask a question that I didn't want to fully answer, but I could get around, you know, without giving anything away. She said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a teacher. And I quickly said, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a realtor. And I said, that's great. And then she said she drives Uber when she doesn't have any showings. I said, that's great. And so the conversation came on and she moved us closer and closer to spiritual things. Until she asked a question, I could not get around without lying. She said to, to us, she said, well, do you guys have any spiritual beliefs or any religious background? And Donna looks at me and telepathically communicates to me, you have to tell her. She's the godly one in the marriage. And so I, so I do, I say, I lean forward to say, Jane, actually we do. Um, I'm actually a professor at Wheaton College and I teach evangelism and you are doing so great right now. And she laughed and I said, can I record an interview with you right now? This is what happens when you have a blog. You're always looking to feed the blog. So she says, sure. So I interview, and if you Google Jane the Uber driver, the little article got picked up all over. And it's interesting, you know, because Jane just knew she was using the road example. She was on a Great Commission highway. Someone told her about Jesus, and she knew she was given, she was reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5 says, and given a ministry of reconciliation, given the message of reconciliation. That's just what she knew. She knew that somebody told her, and somebody told that person, somebody told that person, somebody told that person, and a gospel community that holds this as a value stands before one another and says, how can we show and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The next day, um, Billy Graham died. 
And you fast forward a week or so beyond that, and we were gathered at the funeral. And a reporter came up to me from the New York Times, and she asked me the normal questions they ask when they're interviewing about Billy Graham's legacy. That, you, know, you know, what do you think his greatest contribution is? What do you think about times he made mistakes? Um, and then they ask, who's the next Billy Graham? And nobody claims to be the next Billy Graham. Nobody in the family says, I'm the next Billy Graham. Nobody, nobody that I know of claims to be Billy Graham. But I was kind of ready for the question. So uh, the reporter says, who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, Jane, the Uber driver. <laughs> and she looked at me with this perplexed face. And we, 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 were, we were friends. I knew, knew her from uh, what a part of my job in media relations in the past. And so I explained the story to her. She smiled and said, that's a great story, but it's not making the New York Times. <laughs> you see, here's the thing, though. Jane is just on that Great Commission Highway, like Billy Graham was on that Great Commission Highway. And clearly, this community was on that Great Commission Highway. They, they formed and shaped after Peter's sermon, and a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. But the reality is evangelism seems to have fallen on a low ebb. Now, it's very easy for me to preach and for us to bemoan the inactive evangelism of the people back home. But it was actually a few years ago, maybe six years ago now, I was living in Nashville at the time, and the Lord convicted Donna and I about our own evangelistic practice. I've been kind of a motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river for a few years now. And um, about half of the people got that, half you didn't. It's all right. It's all right, man. I love you, man. I love you, man. So... um, but I kind of got convicted that maybe we weren't doing that as much as we should ourselves. So we actually did something that I, I want to encourage you to do as we kind of close our, uh, close our time together. Is I, um, Don and I sat down and we drew out our neighborhood. And we drew our neighborhood and uh, there's a, kind of a road here and a road here. Goes around here, comes back down here. And, um, and then there's a street over here. So we drew out our neighborhood, and we, we drew the people around us. We, we actually lived here, and we knew the people back here didn't know the Lord, and uh, the, one of the people in this house didn't know the Lord, and these people didn't know the Lord. These people knew the Lord, so we didn't count them. Uh, <laughs> these people didn't know the Lord. These people didn't know the Lord. These people didn't know the Lord, um, and uh, these people didn't know the Lord. And we kind of went around and drew out our neighbors. And when we did, we began to say, Lord, would you give us the privilege of sharing the good news of the gospel with them in community? Because what happened was we started to do that. And we, we actually, um, I don't know how many I drew here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So, so we focused on eight neighbors. And over the course of two to three years, we had the privilege of sharing the gospel with seven of eight of them, not just inviting them to church, but sharing the gospel with them. And, 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 and we, you say, why didn't you do eight of eight? And the, the, the reason is these people don't, didn't like us. We love them, but they didn't like us. Um, they didn't like my kids. They said, get your kids stuff off our lawn. You know, every neighborhood needs someone like that. That's my goal, actually, when I'm older, is to be that person. Um, but, you know, we actually had the privilege of leading this couple to, to Christ and um, baptizing this couple and seeing them follow Christ and become leaders in the church. Had the privilege of leading uh, this, this, this fellow, husband and wife. The wife was a Christian. 
Uh, he was not, that led him to Christ. And we began to gather together first in my home because we were building a community of, with rhythm of life. And then we moved over here because when you have a Bible study in someone else's home, that always guarantees one family there. <laughs> and this family we began to share the gospel with, and, and they, they are still actually, uh, she has since committed her life to Christ after we moved away. And he's not yet a believer. And, and, and over here, we actually, I had the privilege of baptizing this couple right here. And, and they actually, two years later, became missionaries to Brazil. So the lesson is don't live in the neighborhood unless you want to go far away. And we went and shared the gospel. And, and I will tell you, it didn't always end well. Very hard conversation here about how, how can I go to a church that believes what you believe about people who, uh, who, are, uh, who are LGBT? Or over here it was, how can, how can we believe this to be true when, when there's no scientific evidence of it? And so it wasn't all this. This family here was interesting. I, I, was, uh, I was actually working... I was, uh, they came, rang the doorbell. I was working out on the, uh, the elliptical. And I know what you're thinking. You're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> but I was. And, uh, and I was covered in sweat. And I come to the door. And they're, they, they go, oh, oh, we'll come back later. And it was, it, was the, it was the stepdad, the mom, and the son. And they, they said, no, you came over last week. You were kind of explaining to us. And we have some questions. And we sat down and walked through the gospel again and afresh and anew. Why do I share this illustration with you? Well, because what happened was, is that a gospel community began to shape in this home. And actually, it multiplied over here to another, and a group of neighbors began to come from over here as well. And, and one of the things that I want to shape as the rhythm of life in the church I pastor was I would share about this all the time. I would say, you know, so-and-so, and they're right over there. I'd always get their permission beforehand. But in doing so, what we did is we can bemoan the lack of evangelistic activity in our churches back home, or we can go home with a deeper commitment to evangelistic activity in our lives. See, sisters and brothers, you can't lead what you won't live. So for us to say that we're going to be committed to godly living, sacrificial service, and quoting Article 9, an energetic mission means that we're going to reflect the values of the community that we know was evident in the New Testament. Because throughout this, we hear what they're like. They're in this rhythm of life devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship. God's doing miracles and people are united. They had things in common and more. They devoted themselves to another rhythm of meeting together and house to house. And from those houses, something happened. Because every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Sisters and brothers, we need a a move of God on our churches to value sharing the gospel again today. It seems that the rhythm of life in most of our churches prioritizes everything but that. Or maybe it's lower on the shelf. It's the third, fourth, or fifth priority. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. We live in a season and a time when the good news needs to be proclaimed by a faithful community living out its gospel mission. So my encouragement to you as we've gathered together these days as the Evangelical Free Church and you had business and and you voted on things, and you had fellowship. If I could just, as I exhort you, kind of as you go home, is a gospel community on mission evangelizes and disciples in the rhythm and flow of life together. So much of this is about the rhythm and flow of life together, but we can see what happens because they weren't just a bless-me club. They were on mission so the name and fame of Jesus would be more widely known. I'm deeply thankful for the Evangelical Free Church. I've 
had the privilege of being a friend with many of your leaders and seeing how God has used you, how God has worked through you, and how God has especially blessed you. You're a gift to the body of Christ. I pray that in some small way, as the writer of Hebrews says, he said that we was going to be uh, you know, we were provoking one another to love and good deeds. As I close, my hope is that you've been provoked to love and good deeds, to be a gospel community on mission, evangelizing and discipling in the rhythm and flow of life together. And you'll lead that in your own life so that the value might be evident in your church's fellowship and community because you have stepped forward and said, here I am, Lord, send me and take a whole congregation with me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by your grace and goodness, you have redeemed us and called us by name, and we acknowledge afresh and anew that the community described in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, speaks to our heart and perhaps burdens us. The words itself makes us thirsty for more. Father, I pray that part of that more would be evidenced in verse 47, that the Lord would add daily to our number those who are being saved. Father, let us not forget that evangelical at a root word is evangelist gospel and that the gospel might be on our lips might be in our hearts might be in our strategies and our neighborhoods that we would maybe even do something similar to what i've done but on our lips and our hearts it might be so ultimately it might be part of the rhythm and flow of life of our congregation people might look in see miracles and unity and from that life change that flows out in gospel evangelism for it's in jesus name and for his sake we pray Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.